Good morning, everybody. Uh, Christina Kuzmich, uh, I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a mother. She's done uh, some parenting videos, just, just did them herself, locally produced parenting videos. They've gone absolutely viral on YouTube. You, you probably have bumped into these. I want to show you a clip of a Christina Kuzmich parenting video, okay? T take a look. Listen very carefully to what she has to say about parenting and being an ally. L listen. If my child does something unacceptable, they're not going to get away with it. I'm going to set an appropriate consequence, and I'm going to follow through. Even if they whine about it, I'm going to follow through. Even if it complicates my day, I'm going to follow through. Even if they don't like me, I'm going to follow through. That is being a parent. But because I'm also an ally, I'm gonna follow that consequence with, sweetie, yes, you messed up. Now forgive yourself, learn from this, and let it go. I love you. Being a parent and an ally. Did you hear? It's being a parent and I'm also an ally. Where did she ever come up with such a concept? The root idea, as many of you know, the root idea is directly from the Bible, and only the Bible. I'm unaware of whether she knows that, but it is true. Being a consistent parent who punishes out of love did not arise from some human consensus. Far from it. The human consensus on parenting is, as history proves, very, very different. The idea of a parent who is a true ally, someone who follows through with punishment as part of a full expression of love, such parenting arises solely from the character of God the Father himself and only there. Because God is exactly what we just sang, because he is the good, good Father. He is an ally even as he corrects. His punishment is based on absolute truth and absolute love and is for the absolute and ultimate good. All God's people said... Amen. It's true. Perfect example of this is found in the prophecies of Zephaniah. Open your Bible, if you would, to Zephaniah uh, chapter 2. Zephaniah is the fourth to last book in your Old Testament. So it's near the end of your Old Testament. Go to Zephaniah 2, and let's pick it up in, in verse 4, where God describes, he begins his description of how he chastises the nations. All right? Here's the good father being a good parent. Listen to this. Uh, verse 4. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Eshdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, Nathan, the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and folds for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. It all starts with Philistia and the West. In our notes, uh, there inside your bulletin, look inside your bulletin, you'll see that summary. God speaks of judgment to come on Philistia and the West. The coastal plain of Israel was home to a number of city-states, some of them very powerful over the years, over the centuries. The Philistines who controlled these cities came from the sea. About 500 years earlier, they came from the sea and they settled along the coast of Canaan. In fact, the Philistines, do you know this? They were very likely a Greek-speaking people. They came from the island of Crete. That, that's why Zephaniah calls them Carathites. That's a form of Cretans, means people from the island of Crete. They spent a long time oppressing Israel, and thus the Philistines are going to face the punishment that God promises for everyone who persecutes the Jews. Now, just a couple of really cool notes that highlight God's plan and power here. Look at verse 4. See how the big city of Ashdod will fall by noon? Most ancient battles begin right after sunrise. The, the soldiers would, would get a breakfast, a, a quick breakfast. And it's kind of funny to study ancient armies. Different breakfasts were indicative of different 
cultures and different armies. Right after they had breakfast, kind of by tacit agreement, the armies would clash. If the great city, and it was a great city, of Ashdod is completely emptied out by noon, that means God has utterly routed them, right? Go on to verse 7. When Messiah establishes his kingdom, Israelis will possess the houses in Ashkelon that have been used by people who hate God. You, you see lie down? Whenever you see lie down in Scripture, that's a euphemism for being totally secure, totally at rest, totally at peace. The Jews are going to lie down because they are, they are at peace God himself dwells with them in his Messiah. You got the picture? Speaking geographically, Zephaniah details how God will judge those people who persecute his people. In that judgment, God, Yahweh will give complete victory and peace to his own. Now, same kind of judgment will fall on the nations to the east. All right, look, look at the next section. Go to verse 8. I've heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who've taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. By the way, you'll see that a lot through Zephaniah, that little declaration. That's a little break in the text just so that you'll refocus and recognize just how important this is as the word of the Lord. All right? Uh, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom. The Ammonites like Gomorrah, a, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coastlands of the nations will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. Stop there. In American football, we have a new rule against what is called taunting, right? It's a 15-yard penalty, taunting is. Um, I, I personally prefer the way baseball deals with taunters, all right? When some, when some cocky guy from the other team flips his bat and glares at our team, you know. You know and he knows. He is going to get a pitch in his side or Rufnet Odor is going to meet him at second base, right? <laughs> One of those things is going to happen. He doesn't know when it's going to happen, but he knows it's coming. That's a lot closer to the idea of prophecy in Scripture. God doesn't give 15-yard penalties, right? God one day lays waste to those people who harm his people. Now, look, here's the territory being described. This time, it's all to the east of Jerusalem, the nations of Moab and, and Ammon. For centuries upon centuries, the governments, and quite frankly, the bulk of the common people here, have violated the Abrahamic covenant, and they know it. They know that God's word requires Israel to offer them the hand of friendship. They know that they are granted the chance for salvation if they will trust in Yahweh, who accepts everyone. And yet, they keep acting year after year after year as if they can abuse Israelis and get away with it. So God has a second base surprise waiting for them. All right? Look at the awesome phrase in verse 11. You see verse 11, when God starves all the little g gods. Starves is the Hebrew razah. This idea is brilliant. Okay, you, you probably know this. Pagan peoples fed their gods, right? They fed their gods. The, the idea in paganism is the gods don't want to have to work, and so they will punish and abuse and hurt people unless the people will bring them food so the gods can be fed. They don't, they don't have to work that way. And if the person will follow, now listen, if they'll follow all the right formula that the pagan god lays down, do it just the right formula way, and if they will bring enough food, the god will give them protection. They won't have any pain. That's paganism in a nutshell. But look at your text. Yahweh is going to desolate the nations when he judges, and then all those idols will be starved. Get this. The sense seems to be not that there won't be, there won't be any food to bring the gods. That's not the idea. The idea is the peoples will voluntarily stop 
their false worship. Why? Why? Because when they're punished by Yahweh, these humans are going to realize that the promises of their false gods were worthless. Since they were not protected from pain, the way the false gods promised they'd be protected from pain, the people are forced to rethink. That pain that God brings them is actually a blessing that can lead them away from false worship to true hope. I love, I love the way Dr. House summarizes what's happening here in the text. He says, God is still supremely a judge, but he's now a judge inclined to see some chance of releasing the defendant. Thus, the totally wrathful picture of God that we saw in chapter 1, 9 through 17 is tempered by the portrayal here, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 12, of Yahweh is still angry, but now offering hope. Of course, you realize this dynamic is not merely for a terminal judgment day. This happens all the time. Think about, think about your personal idolatries. Every one of us has them horribly. What do your personal idolatries promise you? They promise that if you will just follow the perfect formula, right? If, if you will just put in exactly what the idol needs, then you will be protected from pain. You'll, you'll have security, right? That's what Buddha promises. That, that's what drugs and alcohol promise. That is what the, the perfect job and money and, and ideal nutrition and sports fanaticism, that's what they promise. Ending of pain. That's why we worship all these things. But God loves us enough to shock us with real pain. And then seeing the truth, we starve our idols instead of serving them. And then we are freed to move toward real salvation. We leap behind the false promises of temporal security and pain management you do realize that God, Yahweh, the real God, never promises people a lack of pain here on earth. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite. He promises something much, much better, eternal salvation. All God's people said, amen. amen. May it be so. Now, read verse 12. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. Cush was a wealthy kingdom. Uh, generally controlled the area from the first cataract of the Nile up to the sixth cataract. Cush is sometimes called Nubia inside and outside the Bible. Uh, at various seasons, Cush dominated Egypt. Much more often, they were dominated by Egypt. One of the world's great trade routes wound through Cush, giving the Nubians great tax revenue. They had great tax revenue on gold and cosmetics and, and wild uh, exotic animals and silver and spices. Many times the Cushites, now this occurred both when they were allied with Egypt and on their own, the Cushites fought against Israel. In fact, at the time that Zephaniah writes this, it appears that Cush was trying to get a secret treaty with Assyria that would cause them to both jointly invade Judah and divide up all of Judah's lands. That does not sit well with Yahweh. Please remember the context, okay? Back in chapter 1, God started this whole conversation by chastising Judah. He corrects his people. But that doesn't mean that God is blind to the evil of the other people around Judah who are also guilty. Uh, Ken Barker summarizes really nicely. He says, the angry God on a rampage against Judah now condemns the neighbors for mistreating Judah, shifting some of his wrath from Judah to the neighbors and placing himself as Judah's protector. Close quote. Any parents here? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. Okay, okay, lots of parents. You have almost surely imitated Yahweh in this text, right? You, uh, have you ever run through the house to get to the place where you could hear the kids were fighting? Of course you have. You're a parent, right? All right. So imagine yourself. You're running through the house to get to where the kids are fighting. When you get there, there's almost always one kid that you have to zero in on first, right? The, the one who has his foot on the other kid's neck gets your attention first. That's fine. But, but once you have defused the stomper, what do you do? 
you start investigating. And you start asking questions. And you realize there's nobody innocent in this room, right? <laughs> everybody played some role in this thing. And then you start doling out all the punishment to everybody else that they deserve as well. Why do you do that? Because in imitation of Yahweh, you are trying to be a good parent. That's what good parents do. In Zephaniah, we've gone to the west and the east and the south. Now time for a little look to the north. Uh, go to chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Assyria and the north. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh as a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal. Both the desert owl and the screech owl will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. I've got to stop right there for just a second. Um, most ancient buildings, uh, even, even when they built with stone, as they did in Nineveh, even when they built with stone, the foundation of ancient buildings was most often cedar wood. Uh, the reason is pretty simple. Why do you have a cedar chest or a cedar closet at your house? What, what, what does that provide for you? Yeah, no bugs. The bugs don't get there. So they used cedar, sometimes cypress, but usually cedar, as, as the foundation underneath, even below the stones, because it didn't decay, it didn't rot. So whenever you see in a biblical text or any ancient text that the cedar is exposed, that means it is utterly unearthed. Everything is turned over. The foundation is even undone. Okay, that's what's going to happen to Nineveh. Uh, verse 15. This is the self-assured city that lives in security, that thinks to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she's become. A place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her jeers and shakes his fist. Okay. We're going to get a little context here by playing an imagination game. Okay? Imagination. I want you to imagine something. Imagine what life would be like if Hitler's Reich had lasted 400 years. 400 years. Hitler had, they won. Okay? Suppose the Germans triumphed in World War II, which, by the way, is a distinct possibility don't misread history. It could very easily have happened. And then after they won, they consolidated trade and they consolidated power, squeezing the United States into smaller and smaller and smaller influence on the world stage. Suppose Nazi laws and propaganda had begun to take over all across the world, and for 400 years, the Third Reich just grew and grew and grew in power. By the way, I was discussing this with my son last week, and, and he suddenly asked me a fascinating question. He said, hey, Dad, do you, do you know what they called the propaganda writers who crafted and checked Hitler's speeches? I said, no, I don't. What would they call them? He replied, they were grammar Nazis. <laughs> I think that's why the next day God had his appendix rupture and he had to have to go into surgery. <laughs> anyway, I'm kidding. Anyway. Imagine what life would be like if Germany had controlled world law and trade for 400 years. That, okay, you got that picture? That's a pretty fair picture of what life was like for people who had to live under the domination of Assyria for 400 years. Nineveh was the greatest city the world, no exaggeration, greatest city the world had ever known. Massive and powerful and majestic. And just as the prophet Nahum also prophesied, Zephaniah tells us Nineveh is going to be a complete waste and that is exactly what happened. Not too long after Zephaniah wrote this, Alexander the Great stood on the site of Nineveh. Actually, he was standing on the tell of the central keep of the city, and he had no idea there was even a city that had ever been underneath his feet. That's how horribly it was destroyed. It was this fulfilled prophecy that inspired the British poet Percy Shelley to write the, the great sonnet Ozymandias, the one that you had to read in 10th grade English that you've forgotten, but let me remind you. Uh, Percy Shelley, he said this, 
I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Close quote. That captures the spirit of the judgments in Zephaniah chapter 2. But go back to verse 11 where we saw Yahweh's coming restoration. Read the last part of verse 11. Then all the distant coastlands of the nations will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. <clears throat> when Yahweh judges, it is always with a view to bring humans into a restored relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't just give the justice people deserve. He grants mercy. God gives the opportunity to know him, to come to him in a relationship, to bow in worship from wherever one comes. Remember, remember, paganism was regional in thought, right? The gods were greatly the gods of only certain places. Uh, classical religion was also very racial. You couldn't worship from your race the god of that race and vice versa. But Yahweh promises a whole world, even the distant coastlands, that all can be in relation to Him. Now, if you read the Bible, the Scriptures go on to tell how it is that all these disparate people can be rightly related to Yahweh. It is through faith in the Savior God Himself who made a way through His own sacrifice. Read with me, Philippians chapter 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 7. You read the underlined text. When He, Jesus, appeared in human form, He humbled Himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That, just as Zephaniah said, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Beautiful. Jesus is the embodiment of God's restoration. A relationship with God comes through his justice. God's mercy comes to you and to me through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to satisfy God's justice. If you trust in Jesus, you are spiritually restored forever. Can I get an amen? amen. How about a hallelujah? hallelujah? All right. Now, look to the right side of our notes. Let's discuss the question that you see there. What do we learn from these judgments? Uh, for me, there are three big lessons that jump out here. The first, um, God keeps his word. What he promises will come to pass. I, I need a volunteer. I want to ask a volunteer a series of questions I wrote down here. You, you can stay where you're at. Just raise your hand. I need a volunteer who wants to answer some questions. Okay, you got it. All right, you ready? All right, question number one. Do you know, have you ever known any person who was really trustworthy? Someone on whom you could always rely that they would keep their word. Do you know anyone like that? You do. Okay, what's, what's their name? Who is it? Nate. Nate always keeps his word to you. Good, that's awesome. And he's not even sitting here, so we know you're not doing that just to get candy. All right. Um, would you trust Nate, if he told you something today, would you trust him to keep his word? Would you, yes or no? Yeah, okay, great. Now, next question. Is God greater than Nate? He is? Yeah, okay. He said, yeah, of course he is. So now i got another question for you. And, and, and this may not be true of you, but it often is of me. So let me just assume you're like, you're like I, uh, like I am. Do you find sometimes that you doubt God's promises, His Word, 
but you don't doubt Nate. Isn't that weird? He said, yes, he doubts God's promises, but he doesn't doubt Nate's. Isn't that strange? He just said and means it that God is greater and more trustworthy than Nate, but he finds it easier to trust Nate than he does to trust God. I totally relate to that. I trust my sweetheart completely. And God, I often doubt. And yet, I know Jenna, and I know that she is flawed, and I know that God is not. So why don't we take God at his word? I've thought a bit on this oddity, and I've reached the conclusion that the main reason we don't take God at his word is that we don't know him as well as we do our human friends. He, he makes himself known. He speaks clearly to us in his word. He calls us to trust him. He gives us a chance to know him through faith in Jesus. And yet, even those of us who are believers in Jesus, we often stop following him. We stop doing the things that help us know him better and better and better. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 6 nails us. Look what he said. Those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. That's often us because we think we know it all. Because we get lazy. Because we get distracted. We stop engaging in the things that grow us closer to the triune God. And that's why we don't trust his word like we should. What do we learn from Zephaniah chapter 2? That God keeps his words. And we must spend more time with him so that we will trust him. All God's people said? Amen. May it be so. Second thing we learn is that God will restore. He'll restore Israel, the nations. He'll restore proper, healthy worship. Um, Sarah Gosfener of our church staff shared a wonderful summary about restoration as it's promised by Zephaniah. Look what Sarah wrote. She said, he cleanses them, provides for them, abides with them forever. What greater hope and joy could there be for God's people? Close quote. Well said. In other words, this world is a large fixer-upper and God is Chip and Joanna Gaines, okay? <laughs> with an unlimited budget. God keeps his word. He will restore you. Third thing. God calls us to humility. Every relationship with the covenant God, Yahweh, has to begin with this basic, this basic understanding. There is a God, and I am not He. There is a God, and I am not He. People bow before the Lord because that's appropriate. God is God. I am not. This is a litmus issue. Folks, this is a fork in the road of every life path. I, I either see the truth, and I approach God in humility, or I am like Nineveh. There is no in-between. Here, here, take the word of somebody who knows. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, we learn that Yahweh humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who conquered everything very soon after Zephaniah spoke. God humbled that emperor, and this, this was his response. He says, now, Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The God who promises justice can humble those who walk in pride, and he does. Now, the God who promises justice is not just focused on others. He also directs his correction back against the Jews. Look at chapter 3, where God centers judgment on Jerusalem. Read, read verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. Yahweh is not merely concerned with those others who are around Israel. He actually, you ready for this? He set all this up as a target. This is so sneaky of God, right? All these other nation judgments are actually setting the stage for God's chastisement of his chosen people. Look, look, picture it in context, okay? You, you and I are Jews in Jerusalem, and we endured a cracking over the knuckles through Zephaniah's first message, what we call chapter 1. We get correction from God, and it hurts. It, it really hurt. But now, 
Now in this second message, we hear all these judgments on those nasty peoples who hate us to the west and the east and the south and the north. And we're cheering. We're rejoicing as God gives it to those darn Yankees. <laughs> yeah, let them have it, right? Until Zephaniah zeroes in on us again. Then we stop cheering and we realize it was all a setup. God, God was circling to get to his main idea that his own people need a good hard spanking. The only other prophet to ever circle around like this was Amos, but that was 150 years before Zephaniah. Since Judah is reading very little scripture in Zephaniah's time, I doubt they saw this coming. Imagine this came as a complete surprise. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves. And God has circled around Jerusalem in order to pounce on five big things, five big things that must change. First, the Jews are oppressive. Social justice is absent. People oppress each other. The government is corrupt and uses its power to keep people down. And, and by the way, it wasn't just the government. All right? We know from, from Jeremiah, I don't have time to go into all the passages, but in Jeremiah it's clear that the laws were abused by common people in order to serve themselves. You know what, you know what Jeremiah depicts? People played the victim card in order to force sympathy and get their own way. It's a particularly crafty kind of oppression. In other words, it was very much like every culture of every time period, including ours. There is true corruption and cronyism that must be addressed in every age and every place. Laws and customs are misused. They are misused both to oppress and to gain control through victim status. It's all part of a, a macabre, self-interested passion play. It's sick. And the problem must be addressed. We know from all of the prophets that God is not very impressed with the, well, it wasn't me defense. God is not impressed with that. If oppression exists and God's people don't speak out, they earn the correction of Zephaniah 3.1. Edmund Burke was right. Edmund Burke was totally right when he said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do what, everybody? <laughs> Nothing. Problem number two, they are self-reliant. Uh, verse two, pick up the context. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city, she's not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She's not trusted in Yahweh. She is not drawn near to her God. They don't see the need for Yahweh. They can solve all their own problems. They certainly don't want God's guidance on his rules about right and wrong. In a nutshell, the Jews think that they can handle life just fine without God's interference. Thank you. Thank goodness we're never like that. Just think about the last, do this, just think back to the last crisis you faced, okay? Um, go back to this morning, right? When, when, when your twins decided to help in the kitchen, true story from someone in the church, your twins decided to help in the kitchen while you were changing the baby's diaper in another room. When you came back to your destroyed kitchen, did you immediately turn to Yahweh for help? Did you? D did you draw near to God in your frustration or did you just react without asking him to give you any assistance at all. Or consider this. Consider the last time that you were really convicted by Scripture, hopefully today. Did you embrace that discipline, or did you find ways to erode its impact? Uh, blame it on the weather, or, or, or your parents, or the teachers, or, or the government, right? Speaking of government, that's the next problem in Jerusalem. The government is greedy. The people are oppressive and self-reliant. The government is rapacious. Look at verse 3. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Here's what's going on. Both the executive branch and the legislators are working together to rape the people with confiscatory taxation. All right? 
By the way, when you see judges and it's describing Iron Age Israel, that's kind of a combination of our judiciary and legislative branch in, in one body. They're so greedy, they leave, they leave virtually nothing for the people to just enjoy life. Almost nothing with which to praise God. How many of you know who Tim Hawkins is? He's a pretty funny comedian. All right. Tim Hawkins uh, nails, I think, he did a little music video. Well, I think nails Zephaniah 3.3. Take a look. Here's Tim. Who can take your money? That's enough of that. <laughs> now read verse 4. Verse 4. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. Things aren't any better in the temple. The religious leaders are slippery. They're just as slippery. The, the key word is probably the one we translate reckless. It's, it's the Hebrew pehaz. Uh, pehaz. I, I want you to hear how Hebrew scholar James Swanson describes pehaz. This is fascinating. Look what he says. Pehaz is to be insolent arrogant, that is, pertaining to a person that has false confidence in oneself or one's abilities, and so have a false, morally repugnant haughtiness, haughtiness, better than thou attitude. Guys, that sounds like nearly every spiritual person I meet in our world today. There is this morally repugnant haughtiness because I drive a Prius, right? That, that's, that's what you see. This is what makes religious leaders so dangerous. That's what's considered spiritual today. I, okay. Um, this is why religious leaders are so dangerous. They, they become slippery. They do violence to God's word to make themselves feel pehaz, to feel morally superior. They twist God's word. They add to it, subtract to it, make scripture say what they want it to say so they can feel good about themselves. We see this all the time, and not just in others. I catch myself sliding into a haughty, insolent attitude toward worship and the Bible. Look at verse 4. Those are the two specifics there. I get haughty toward worship and the Bible. I'm sure you are capable of the same. And it all begins with pehaz. We are reckless in developing our souls. We throw out humility because we would rather be able to complain about the music. We take scripture and we twist it to fit our preconceptions or the political correctness of our day. And thus we, we, priests of the Most High God who serve under the High Priest Jesus, we become slippery contributors to the problem instead of the salt and light we're meant to be. We should know better. Of course, same thing can be said of Judah under Zephaniah and, and King Josiah. Jump down to verse 6. 6 and 7, take a look. I have cut off the nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I thought you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Judah should have learned from all the others, the people that have already been punished by God. But they didn't notice that they have become the very thing they hated. This reminds me of an ironically hilarious note I received one time. Okay, um, there was a guy 
who felt very strongly about one side of a debatable theological issue. Not, not a black and white biblical issue, but a, an interesting debatable theological issue. And he wrote me a letter, snarky, spiteful letter, ragging on a guest speaker who had stood in this, in this pulpit. And, and that guest speaker represented the viewpoint that was opposite this guy's. This letter writer just railed about the lunacy of this other guy's position. I wrote him back. And I asked why this guy disliked it so much. I said this. I said, what do you dislike so much about that other camp? All right? You ready for his reply? Here's what he wrote. He said, they are so mean-spirited. <laughs> oh, I had fun. It was a blast. If that's true, if they, whoever they are, are outside of God's will, and they may be, then what should our response be? To learn from them and become more humble and holy, right? But instead, we tend, you know this, we tend to become the very thing we hate. They're stupid, we become more so. They're angry and ugly, we justify getting uglier. We should know better, but we just become even more corrupt. Now, look at verse 5, which we skipped over and saved for last. Verse 5, go back to verse 5. The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn, yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. Unlike sinful humans, Yahweh is unfailing. Look at the title he uses for himself. Very, very significant here. Our English Bibles render the Hebrew name Yahweh, almost always they render it as Lord. If you ever see in your Bible, L-O-R-D in all caps, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's the special covenant name for God. It, it is always used of God's relationship to human beings by His grace. It's, it's a name for a commitment that cannot and will not waver. This is the covenant name of God who never does wrong, who never fails, who never lets go. You know, possibly you've noticed a pattern this year. Our annual theme this year has been a quote from the book of Romans. Quote from the book of Romans, to be more than conquerors. All year, you and I have been focused in what we've studied on becoming people of courage. And yet, have you noticed this? And yet we've spoken a great deal about Yahweh. We've, we've spent rather little time on ourselves. We've spent a great deal of time looking at the character of Yahweh. That was true when we studied Exodus. It was true in 2 Timothy. It's certainly true here in Zephaniah. Why is that? Why has the Lord taken us so deeply into His character on a year when we're trying to become courageous? Why? Because this is the font of courage. God's covenant character. We don't gain bravery through more of us. We become bold when we understand the power and the unshakable love of our God. Yahweh is unfailing. That makes us courageous. That makes all the difference. All God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, now look over these verses in chapter 3. What do we learn from these judgments? I, I, again, I see three things that apply to many of us. Now, you very likely will see many more applications as you study this that fit you specifically. Here, here's mine. Here's my big three. First, we stop making Scripture say what we want it to say. And we stop twisting Scripture beyond what it clearly declares. Um, before Charles Schultz became famous for his comic strip Peanuts, he penned this cartoon. Charles Schultz wrote this cartoon. Got a, got a guy lying on the floor looking at a Bible. A girl has probably asked him a question. He's answering this. He says, don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of Scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. <laughs> that happens so often. And if we want to make a difference in a screwed up world, that must stop. Quit doing violence to God's instruction by cherry picking and twisting Scripture. Stop it. Secondly, we, secondly, we repudiate the lie of self-sufficiency. Look, look at verse 2. Verse 2. 
The depiction of Jerusalem in verse 2, I think, is a very accurate description of North Texas. Our supposed self-sufficiency is a lie that takes us far from God, and we must repudiate it. I, I really think Mark Hall captured what we need in his song, Thrive. It was released by his band, Casting Crowns. Uh, look at these lyrics. Uh, if you don't know the song, listen to this. Look. Here in this worn and weary land where many a dream has died, like a tree planted by the water, we will never run dry. Living water flowing through. God, we thirst for more of you. Fill our hearts, flood our souls with one desire, just to know you and to make you known. We know we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive, close quote. We need to stop surviving via our self-sufficiency. We need to thrive through Yahweh's sufficiency. And that takes us to my final application. We start relying fully on God. We start trusting the unfailing Yahweh. Let me read you a letter I received this last week. Maybe you can relate to this. Take a look. A friend of mine wrote me. He said, Wayne, I've recently been agonizing over the situation in our country and looking for a way to protect myself and my loved ones from the fallout of this looming disaster. Some of my friends are pursuing different reactions, including leaving the country. I don't see any approach by human means that is truly satisfactory. Now, he went on, but I want to stop the letter right there. That is serious despair, is it not? That is no doubt what Zephaniah felt in his dark days. Remember, he lived under the most amazingly horrific king in ever in human history, a guy named Manasseh and his wicked son, Amon. That must be how Zephaniah felt. But I want you to look at the next paragraph of the letter from my friend, okay? He, he said... I don't see any approach by human means that is truly satisfactory. Then there was a gap in the letter, and he wrote this. Looking over what I just wrote, in effect, I said, if all else fails, trust God. I got it backwards, didn't I? Close quote. Well done. Look, even in the judgment passages, Yahweh reminds us that he is the best first choice. He's not merely a last resort. In the creek, uh, way back here on our church property, we've seen an incredible crop of frogs this summer. You've probably seen plenty of them up here. We had so much rain in the wintertime, we've had a bumper crop of frogs. Now, the little boy in me has been rather enchanted with all these green hoppers, but these kind of frogs aren't really the frogs we need. Let me introduce you to another frog that I think we need. Here's what we need. We need this frog. It's an acronym, F-R-O-G, fully rely on God. Fully rely on God. That's what we need. So you know what I started doing this year? I started a little memory tool. Maybe you'll want to do the same thing. Whenever I see a frog, I stop and have a check in my spirit. And I just use that as a tool to turn in prayer to the Lord. Am I fully relying on you, God? Frog, am I? Join me in that prayer. Pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I come to you. I come to you with my brothers and sisters, and I ask you to help search our souls and expose the ways in which we are not fully relying on you. You're Yahweh. You, you punish because you're an ally. You get correction because you want us to grow up right. And I pray that we will rely on you. Lord, help expose all the ways in which I am not resting fully in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, Lord, you're my salvation. Nothing else. I beg you to help me and my brethren to starve our idols and turn to the Lord our salvation.